This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, the thing about humans, and I, if you haven't thought about it, I'm sure you will, uh, we can and do eat anything. So what we can do is eat directly. So we can do we could be completely com- carnivorous. We could be almost completely herbivorous. If we can't eat it, like grass, we feed it to a cow who can eat it, or we do what Pascal does, which is takes the yeast and makes bread out of it. Uh, so we can also take that cow and cook it, so we can actually get something out of it. I just picked this slide at random. This is not one that I think depicts much of anything. But the only reason I'm showing it is because I want you to get a sort of an idea of the body size of what we're going to be talking about. None of these animals are small. Okay, so what did they eat? Well, how do you know? So one of the ways is to do morphological comparisons. So what you have here is the skull of a very robust oscillopithecine on your right, and you've got a very early archaic hominin on your left. You just can see that there's a massive difference. This is a chewing muscle that goes through here. It has a ridge on the top of its head where there's musculature that goes all the way up. It is a chewing machine. These are the teeth. So you see the size of these teeth versus the size of another fossil, Australopithecus africanus, compared to a modern human. So you can see the different sizes of teeth. There are people in this room who do that. I don't, but I can do it in general. Okay, what did they eat? You can also look at force and strain. You can look at, use a model. So what you've got here is a macaque monkey. This is done on a macaque monkey skull. This is not done on a live macaque, I don't believe, although those were um, implanted in macaques. Um, This is an australopithecine, or a cast thereof, shaped exactly like you would a a a live one, if you could. And you can see where the stress and the strain is coming. So what you've got is a lot of stress across here, which is where the chewing musculature is going to go back behind here. And so you can see that the distribution of stress in some places is the same, and in other places it's not, because what we're looking at is strain, deformation of the bone following stress. Another way of looking at it is microware. That's what these pictures are. This is work that was done by Mark Tiford and Peter Unger. And what they say is gorilla fineware stry, baboon-like pits, microflakes, and it shifts to hominin puncture crushing. What that tells you a little bit about what kinds of textures these animals were eating, but it doesn't tell you what they ate. Well, I like to go to general principles first. So although I'm not going to give you models, I'll give you some general principles. One of those is as body size increases, metabolic rate decreases per kilo. That's not overall energetics. So for small animals, they have to eat small packages of high-quality food that can be processed quickly. So you think of that Galago monkey. Galago prosimian. You look at a large animal, lots of low-quality food, processed more slowly, and they tend to be more sedentary. And again, it's not total output of energy or total input of energy. It is per kilo. Well, okay, so from that, let's look at what primate foods are all about. Primate foods break down into sort of three categories, insects, leaves, and fruit. 
So what you're looking at is things that are insects. They move around a lot, but they're high in protein. These are also high in protein, but very difficult to digest. And they also are seasonal, so they will disappear, and so they actually move, but over time. Fruit is high in energy. I almost showed you orangutan fruits that do not look like they're high in energy. But most fruits are high in energy, and they're easy to digest. They are, however, like leaves, mobile in time. They come seasonally. When you look at the primates that feed here, you have small primates, very small primates, that can feed on insects. Again, requires small packages of food, but highly easy to digest. You have large primates depicted by this gorilla. It's, again, high in protein, but very hard to digest. And gorillas don't move around as much as the microcebus does. I show you fruit, although there's no animal that can survive just on fruit because you don't get the protein content. But I show you some monkeys that are going to be feeding on fruit. You look at what these animals do do is you get pe- animals along the lines of frugivore folivores. So the large animals will be leaves, and then they combine that with fruit. Small animals will, buy, will either be totally insectivorous or they'll combine that with fruit. What you never have is a primate that relies on leaves and insects. And that's just because a large animal cannot capture enough insects in order to be able to survive itself or able to survive. So we look at this in our body size. We should have been a frugivore folivore, right? Okay, well, you know what your diet is. And I would say that this has been going on for a long time. We were not folivores, not for a very long time. So... What do we do now about what did they eat? All right, this is the part that I will be presenting today and the data that I will present. And these have to do with stable isotopes. Stable isotopes are different forms of the exact same element. And the one I'm going to be talking about is carbon because it's going to be in a mineral portion of enamel or in bone. And you don't get any kinds of organics in that. So what these elements, how they differ are different masses, which means that they react at different rates. And that means that if you've got something that reacts at different rates, that it can be distributed differently at, say, certain trophic levels across different parts of the same trophic level. And that's what we're going to be doing. We present that as C13, C12. Those are the two stable isotopes. You probably heard of carbon-14, which is radiocarbon. This is not a radioactive element. And so isotope, then you get them presented as delta C13, and it's in per mil, just to make it read. You take a standard, you take your, your sample, you com- compare them, and the difference is the delta. Okay, how did this all get started? Well, we know that atmospheric CO2 is taken up by plants, by photosynthetic pathway. In 1948, we knew that there were plants that actually the way in which they took up CO2. And I have to say that there is a man, was at UCSD even when I got here, who was one of the men who discovered this. C4 plants, I'm not even going to talk about them because that wasn't done at UCSD. <laughs> but they were, didn't, weren't even identified <laughs> until 1967. So we've had al- almost 20 years where people thought everything was like this. Now, what do we do now is look at the geochemistry. Well, Samuel Epstein, who uh, was at uh, Caltech, 
1971 finally at his aha moment when he realized that all those plants that he had been collecting across country and everywhere else, and he could make no sense of it because they came out with a bimodal distribution, lo and behold, these were two different photosynthetic pathways. Those two photosynthetic pathways are actually different kinds of plants. So what you get here are what we call C4 plants. They're going to be arid season grasses, some sedges, not very many of them, and many of the succulents have the same numbers, even though they're not C4. They come out to be about a minus 12 uh, compared to atmospheric CO2, which is minus 7. And it's different than it was in the past, so we have to correct for that. Um, C3 plants actually take up their material differently. They fix in a, in a three-carbon sugar at first. They come out to be minus 26. There is no overlap between C3 and C4. These are primate foods. These are leaves, fruits, seeds, herbaceous plants, all those kinds of things. Those are primate foods. These are not primate foods. All right, so... But we're not interested in the plants, right? We're interested in the animals. We're going to try to figure out what the animals do. The first lab study was by one of Sam Epstein's postdocs, Michael De Niro, that was actually my postdoc advisor. And so at Caltech, what they did is they took grasses and they took plants that had a C3 pathway and they fed it to lab rats. And what they discovered was that these two actually mimicked the plants that they ate. So they actually could see the difference. The one issue was, well, okay, but we don't know what the plants are when we're looking at these things from the Pliocene, the Miocene, and even the Pleistocene. Well, okay, you're going to get a number, but what does that tell you about what the plant is or what's going on? You know, at this end, that's C4. You know, at this end, it's C3. What do you know about this? How is it offset from the diet? And what we found in this study is that the offset is about 10 per mil. These are animals with simple guts, just like you and I have. So there was another lab study that was done on Yama, of all things. And it was done, I believe, at the University of Utah. And what they did is they looked at the offset between these large animals and their diets. And lo and behold, they are quite different from one another. So that means if you're going to use what you thought was the offset, which is minus 10, you're going to have problems with an animal like a a yama, a big animal, because it's not going to give you the same kind of information about the diet. This is the reason why. Um, This is for one of the people in the audience. Um, What we have are cows, which are ungulates, and they also are ruminants. They have a very basic stomach in the forefront of their other parts of their digestive system. And what they do is they house huge, vast quantities of microorganisms. And what they can do then is they can actually ferment indigestible material. They are, cows are non-selective feeders. If you look at the skull of a cow, it does not have any top teeth. All it's doing is ripping anything up out of the ground and taking it. And so all the bovids in East Africa are this kind of animal, the ones we're going to compare to, the, um, to our hominins. 
Horses, on the other hand, for those of you, if you live here, you know exactly what a horse looks like. So um, I didn't know that much about horse digestive system until I was looking at this to teach my courses. They also have a pretty massive digestive system, but it's all hindgut. It is not in the stomach, it's in the hindgut. So they actually are far more selective feeders because any toxin that comes in, which gets taken taken um care of by the, the ruminants, microorganisms, cannot be handled by a horse. That's why horses have such more sensitive diet requirements. If you look at a horse skull, it has both upper teeth and lower teeth. That allows it to pick out exactly what it wants to eat. These are primates. Those don't look really anything like either one of these. So why do we think that we can compare our primates, our hominins, directly to browsers and grazers, either zebra or to bobbins in East Africa? If you look at all living primates, so you've got a prosimian here, you've got monkeys, you've got an ape, they are all C3. If you look at old world monkeys, whether you get a sterchopithecine, a colobine, um, what the baboons do, what a Duke Langer does in Asia, they are all C3. does not matter whether they have a large stomach or not. Baboons, um, in very marginal areas, I went through every study that was done on living primates, and what you will hear is that baboons can eat grass. Yes, they can. And about 5 to 10% of their diet can actually be grass, and it's only done in one marginal area out of five in Africa. You also get some poop that is C4, but when you look at their hair or their teeth, they are C3. So now let's go to the fossil record. This is from Bernard Wood, and I really appreciate him allowing me to show this. What you have here are possible and archaic hominids possible hominins. You've got what would be called um, archaic hominins, and here you have the megadont, the ones that I showed you before. Then you get pre-modern homo and anatomically modern human. I will not be going up into this. I I wanted to, and it just wasn't, I didn't think there was going to be enough time to do it. So let's look a little bit at the skeletons of some of these. I just picked some at random. Um, Julia Lee Thorpe in South Africa got us started doing this and has done a phenomenal job of preparing how you do enamel to do carbon isotope analysis. What I hope you see here is that all of these have flared rib cages. And Leslie Aiello once said, Lucy had no waist. If you think about it, even men have waists. Because we have a small digestive system. When we stand up, we have a small digestive system. These others did not. But they're all hindgut fermenters, because that's what all of us are and our relatives are. This is Homo ergaster, a very early Homo erectus. And what I think you'll see is that it does not look exactly like us. He probably had a waist. So what we're looking at is a different size digestive system. So... In 1999, uh, Mats Bonheimer and Julia Lee Thorpe published what I believe is probably the first paper looking at carbon isotopes in um, early hominids to figure out diet. They came up with an average of minus 8.2 per mil. 
said, quote, this early hominid ate large quantities of carbon-13 enriched foods, and from their perspective, the thing that made them human on the human lineage is that we were eating C4 foods. All right, what they did, and I hope you can see this in this slide, is that they took that, the endpoint of C4 foods and they took the endpoint of C3 foods. And I'll remind you, this is a foregut fermenter, this is a hindgut fermenter, it is not a simple gut, either any of them. So what we have here is a zebra and we have a garanuk, but I could have picked a bunch of other ones. Well, I don't think you can compare a primate to that, but that's what they did. And then you take Homo, this was Australopithecus africanus, I believe, at eight. And then they said, okay, well, it's about halfway along the line, massive quantities of C4 foods. Um, There is another way of doing this, and this is what I started looking at. And that is, what if you think about an offset of 10 per mil, which is what simple gutted animals have now, um, we do, roughly, or 14 per mil, what would be the difference in the diet? And what you have are the blue ones are the difference if you look at 10 per mil, and the green ones are the ones if you look at 14 per mil. And I'm not saying that either one of these is correct. It's somewhere probably in between and probably varies across these different species. What I think you'll notice is that virtually all of these have low quantities of C4 foods, if you buy my argument, or they are actually C3 feeders, just like any normal primate would be, with one exception, and that is the very robust ones in East Africa with the huge, massive uh, chewing muscles. And so now... Uh, This cannot be cited, but Fred Grind gave me permission to point out that there is a new Paranthropus at 3.5 million, which would put it way down in here, and it is a C3 feeder. If you look at it, it's either a mix with very little C4 or it is C3. So sometime in around 1 million to 1.8 million, we ended up with a major shift that those animals became C4. It was not true before that. So I'll finish up right now with um, when we get to Homo ergaster or Homo erectus, the same exact number as you saw in the Australopithecine. But here I do not think we're looking at mostly green plants. I think here we're looking at meat, and we're pretty sure, and I think we're going to have some speakers after me, they're going to point out how far back this probably went. This is one of Leslie Allo's, again, human-like body shape, probably the simple gut the way we do. I would say that probably what we're looking at when we have mixed C3 and C4 is probably a mix of hunting zebra and hunting C3 feeding browsing animals. So my conclusions, if we consider variation in diet to appetite, which most people don't, in modern fauna, the diets in early hominins appear far more varied than originally appreciated. If we consider metabolic differences between animals with simple GI tracts which most primate, all primates have, and those relying on extensive fermentation, alternative diets become distinct possibilities. Now, thank you. Oh, wait. One last one.
I, I just want to say I have to thank my students because if it weren't for my present and former students, you would not be have heard this talk today. The world loves meat. Each one of us in the U.S. eats about 200 pounds of meat per year, which um, makes us one of the top meat-consuming countries in the world, and it's more than twice the global average. So we are a nation of meat eaters living in a world of meat eaters, and global meat consumption is on the rise. But the question is, are we as a species inherently vegetarian or carnivorous? The answer is that we are both. Our species evolved to consume an omnivorous diet that contains both plant and animal products. But today, I'll be giving you a very brief history of our species' relationship with meat. And I have been tasked with the job um, to outline the nutritional benefits and costs of eating meat. Man the hunter. Um, the statement is a catchphrase of our species. It conjures bold images that have dominated academic discourse, the media, and public opinion for decades. Here, a popular artist named Banksy plays with this idea in his piece, The Trolley Hunters. And I urge you to do a search for Man the Hunter on the internet and view the type of images that pop up. There are tens of millions of images, and most of them are a variation on a theme, as you might imagine. The individual images and their content are not what's important. It's the underlying take-home message. And that message is that meat made us human. For well over a century, anthropologists have touted meat consumption as the catalyst for critical watershed moments in our evolutionary past. Things like pair bonding, family formation, neural expansion, tool making, and even cooperation. While the specific role that meat might have played in the evolution of human behavior is debated, one thing is certain. Meat did change the playing field for our earliest ancestors. So our history with meat goes back quite far in our evolutionary past, and how far back continues to be debated. The image you see here dates to approximately 20,000 years ago. This artwork is found on the caves in Lascaux, France. And by the time that the artists were painting these images, it's possible, and likely, that early members of our genus had already been eating meat for millions of years. Hunters living in the Paleolithic did not eat only muscle tissue. Much like contemporary foragers today, they consumed all of the animal, all edible portions of the carcass, which would have included organs, bone marrow, and even, in some instances, the GI tract of the animal, which is a practice called gastrophagy. They would have targeted game animals initially using stone tools, with some early, though controversial, dates putting the first stone tools in Kenya at 3.3 million years ago. Hafted, or stone-tipped spears, came on the scene later, with some finds in the archaeological record dating to around 500,000 years ago in South Africa. Bow and arrow technology later still, possibly around 70,000 years ago. The important point here is that different complex technologies were created, modified, and used to target animal protein, going very far back in human evolutionary history. 
So the question of when is a bit tricky to pin down and is something that we'll be talking about today. The question of why our ancestors turned to meat is slightly less contested. This is a photo of women in the population with whom I work, the Hadza foragers of Tanzania, who live in East Africa. And very rarely do we see or associate women with big game hunting. And so I like to show this photo because it highlights the often very cooperative form that hunting in human populations can take. And on this day, a man killed a Cape buffalo, and there was so much meat that all hands were needed on deck to transport this meat from the butchery site back to the camp. And I was also conscripted to help. I am not on camera. I'm taking the photo. Um, And I'm useless, and I was useless that day as well. So my portion had to be carried in a backpack. Um, It was humiliating, uh, but it was helpful. And as I'm not very efficient to carrying anything on my head, so the backpack worked for the day. But when I said all hands on deck, I meant all hands on deck. (laughs) Um, So this begs the question, why all the effort? Meat is a concentrated nutrient source that is easy to digest, depending on preparation, which we will talk about later today also. It's high in protein, niacin, essential micronutrients like B-complex vitamins, iron, and fat. It has three major types of fats, trans fatty acids, cholesterol, and triglycerides that are comprised mostly of saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, and polyunsaturated fatty acids, which we often call PUFAs. Two essential fatty acids found in meat are linoleic acid, which is an omega-6, and alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3. These cannot be synthesized by humans, and so we need them. (laughs) They are important for brain growth and function, so we must consume them in our diet. Additional important omega-3 PUFAs that are found in red meat include docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, and eicosapentaenoic acid, or EPA. These are essential during pregnancy and lactation and have also been shown to reduce the risk of some chronic diseases. Red meat also plays a role in preventing iron deficiency or anemia. And around the world, iron is one of the most commonly deficient nutrients. And this might be linked to the fact that it has low bioavailability, which can be defined as the ease and speed at which a nutrient, like iron, makes its way from the food that we eat to the target tissue. There are two different types of dietary iron, as you might have interpreted from this slide, um, heme and non-heme iron. Non-heme iron is found in both plant foods and animal tissues, and this type of iron is poorly absorbed and has low bioavailability. Heme iron, on the other hand, comes from hemoglobin and myoglobin that's found in animals. And this type of iron is very bioavailable. For example, while it only contributes to a modest 10 to 15% of total dietary intake in the diet of red meat eaters, it accounts for more than 40% of total absorbed iron. So heme iron is also known to increase the absorption of non-heme iron, which means that meat really is the best source of iron that we can consume. It's important, as delays in global brain function and motor function have been associated with chronic iron deficiency. Heme is also involved in the distinction between red and white meat, which is largely based on the myoglobin content. Myoglobin is the heme iron that contains pigmented proteins which make the meat red in color. So the more myoglobin, the redder the meat. 
Beef has far more myoglobin when compared to chicken, which is considered a white meat. And if you are used to classifying pork as a white meat, you're probably likely to do so based on a very successful advertising campaign from the late 1980s. The slogan pork, the other white meat, was created for the National Pork Board in order to boost sales uh, to compete with chicken and turkey. And the campaign was very effective. So although pork is typically classified as a white meat in culinary contexts, it is most certainly a red meat when it comes to its nutritional composition. And this is important because red meat has certain characteristics that white meat does not, and these are often associated with negative health outcomes. Associations reported with colorectal um, cancer and other carcinomas, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and potentially other inflammatory processes as well. There are many proposed explanations for these disease associations, such as saturated fat, high salt intake, and environmental pollutants that may be contaminating red meat. Another mechanistic explanation is the metabolic incorporation of a non-human sialic acid called NU5GC. And much of this groundbreaking work is being done right here at UCSD at the medical school in Ajit Varki's lab. Sialic acids are a family of monosaccharides that are widely distributed in animal tissues and to a lesser extent other organisms. And they're located at the very distal end of sugar chains that are connected to the surfaces of cells and proteins. We lost the enzyme synthesizing NU5GC in our evolutionary past, yet trace amounts are still found in humans. So even though it's a foreign molecule to the human body, we incorporate small amounts from the red meat that we consume. Red meat contains very high amounts of NU5GC. I did a postdoc in Ajit's lab and played a very small role in a very large project that attempted to quantify the amount of NU5GC in commonly consumed foods in the human diet. And um, NU5GC is in all animal products, so anything associated with red meat, which would include dairy products as well. Eating red meat, or the products of red meat, allows for the metabolic incorporation of this NU5GC into human tissues. So the immune system recognizes it as a foreign threat and then produces antibodies to counter it. So repeated consumption of red meat can cause chronic inflammation, which has been known to increase risks of tumor formation. NU5GC has been linked to cancer, as well as cardiovascular and other inflammatory diseases. And all available evidence supports this, including studies that have been done with mice with humanized sialic acids. So despite these disease risks, um, red meat consumption around the world is on the rise. As much of the world is protein deficient, red meat is a good source of protein. And not only protein, but also iron, which we've talked about. So perhaps the solution then, according to many nutritionists, is just to eat less meat. The American Institute for Cancer Research recommends that we don't eat more than about 18 ounces of red meat per week. If the world does continue its upward trajectory, however, how will we feed an expected global population of 9.7 billion by 2050? According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, about 60% of the world's ice-free land surface is currently dedicated to raising crops and providing grazing land for the animals that we eat. So this is supporting around 360 million cattle and 600 million sheep and goats. About 788 million acres are used almost exclusively for livestock. 
A recent census of agriculture by the USDA estimates that this totals up to about 40% of all of the tillable land in the U.S. And many food scientists argue that this level of production is unsustainable. So sustainable alternative feeds for cattle are now being introduced, like microalgae, sugarcane, or brewer's grains, which are the solid residue that are the product of germinated and dried cereal grains um, used to make beer. Diets are also switching to alfalfa, which reduces methane emissions in cattle. So in addition to coming up with more sustainable feed for livestock, people are trying to come up with ways to make the entire food system more sustainable. And some estimates suggest that in order to produce 1 billion kilograms of beef today, we're only using about 88% of the water that we did in 1970, and only about approximately 67% of the land. In addition to coming up with this more sustainable feed for livestock, people are trying to come up um, with ways to just make the entire system uh, more efficient. And this effort extends to reducing waste outputs as well. So the amount of manure, for example, has been reduced by 18% compared to 1977. And in addition, the overall carbon footprint per billion kilos of beef produced in 2017 was reduced by over 16% compared to the same footprint from the late 1970s. But while they might be down, livestock still contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. As of last year in 2017, the FAO estimated that globally, livestock contributes to about 14.5% of all anthropogenic or man-made greenhouse gas emissions due to enteric fermentation and manure. Some estimates suggest that emissions may be similar to those produced by the transportation industry, although this figure is very controversial, suggesting that cows might emit, uh, emit as much gas on Earth as vehicles. Um, so some in the agricultural industry caution that these are not easy comparisons to make, and other factors are, of course, at play. But one thing that conservationists and agricultural industry agree on is that livestock does contribute to a substantial percentage of greenhouse gases in the world. The agricultural industry is making strides, however, to reduce gas output by introducing feeds that create less belching in cows, improving breeding um, in a way that animal health um, interventions are done differently. And the FAO argues that if herd sizes were to shrink based on these best practices, that would mean fewer yet more productive livestock. So in addition to belching and passing gas, Cows also produce a lot of manure. It's the end point of their digestion, and it also produces nitrous oxide. So there are many fascinating new practices being developed that are turning manure into electricity, electricity which is then being sold back to the grid. So the costs of meat production are high. And beyond the environmental costs, there's a segment of nutrition science, um, as well as animal rights activists, that are arguing for the elimination of meat consumption altogether. But given the global rise in consumption patterns, this doesn't seem to be the most likely future outcome. So despite the nutritional benefits of consuming meat, there are significant health and environmental costs of consumption as well. That being said, as we'll hear about today, our species has a very long relationship with red meat. It is one of the hallmarks of human evolution. So the question I leave you with, and one that I borrowed from Ajit Varki, has meat in human evolution gone from a blessing to a curse? Thank you. Okay, so I'm an old, low-ranking male, so that means I should be good at hunting, but 
it kind of depresses me to think that you know that the measure of success is how good a hunter we are. You know, I, I'm a vegetarian. No, well, almost. <clears throat> so that's, that's what I'd like to be. But still, you know, it, it's an important issue. So uh, so let's let's talk about this. Um, so I want to talk uh, about the the origins of what I, what I'll call the human predatory pattern. And the reason I'm calling it that is because that's what Jessica Thompson and colleagues are calling it in um, in a paper in Press and Current Anthropology, to emphasising the fact that hominins are killing animals larger than themselves. Chimps can kill animals the same size as themselves, namely other adult chimpanzees, but uh, they don't eat them. Um, and humans, of course, are different in this respect. So uh, the standard kind of model, uh, which is in some ways uh, the justification for the uh, material we've been hearing about chimpanzees, is that you, you have a lot last common ancestor that was uh, hunting in the chimp style, and, uh, and then out of that comes the human predatory pattern. And then a slight sort of uh, modification of that comes from uh, people like uh, the Jessica Thompson team uh, and I think Brianna, um, where you can have that chimp style hunting, and then uh, in the Australopithecine era, they may or may not have been hunting very much, difficult for them to uh, catch red colobus. Not too many around on the savannah, um, and uh, but still interested in, in meat and animal products. And then out of that, you get um, maybe uh, an interest in fat processing from the marrow and, and uh, other organs. And, and out of that, coming the, the scavenging and hunting. But here's my point: all of this assumes that the stuff is eaten raw. Well, that conforms to uh, conventional wisdom. So conventional wisdom sees uh, australopithecines giving rise to Homo erectus and Homo heidelbergensis, and finally the finest kind of human you can have, uh, represented here by the president of Harvard, uh, (laughs) emerging uh, out of the president of Yale. And the point, of course, is that uh, the, the standard story is that, that this was, was raw meat that was responsible for this, this big transformation, nothing much happening after you get Homo erectus, um, and that fire comes in sometime quite a lot later. And maybe that's true. Um, I, I, I doubt it myself. I, I think that fire came in earlier. But um, uh, what is certainly true is that raw meat is a difficult food for people nowadays. Uh, it's, it's rare to find hunters and gatherers eating raw meat at all, as you see from the survey around the world. Uh, and in Africa, there is no record of people uh, eating raw meat. Um, and... Um, uh, to the extent that we have data on what happens when people do eat raw meat, which is we have to go to urban raw foodists, people who are able to survive on supermarkets and so on, uh, what you find following the red line here uh, is that, um, that raw food is, uh, is a great way of losing weight. Uh, it, it shows that uh, you, you lose body mass index uh, uh, quite uh, predictably by eating a lot of your diet raw, and this includes both uh, vegans and people who are eating their their meat raw. And then the blue line shows you that raw food is quite a good contraceptive, too, because um, (laughs) by the time you're eating 50% of your your food raw, if you are a woman, uh, then uh, you've got a 50... uh, Sorry, 100% of your food raw, 50% chance of... um, uh, of having your reproductive system totally shut down. And that is, that is 
despite the fact that they're eating just about as high quality uh, of uh, raw diet as you can imagine, and having no seasonal stresses and so on. Okay, so um, it's quite clear that cooking does something. Uh, it increases the energy value we know for starch and protein and plant lipids. Now, here is the fact that you should remember among, but beyond anything else that I'm going to say today. Nobody knows what the consequence is of cooking animal fats. We do know about cooking plant lipids, that it increases the digestibility of the plant lipids. You get more energy value out of it. But no one has done it with animal fats, which is crazy. And I'm, if you think about the fact of uh, uh, how, how much more delicious uh, a lump of suet is uh, when it's been cooked, uh, then it seems very likely that your food perception system is tied to uh, the consequences uh, biologically in, in your body. But the fact is that we're not sure. So it seems very likely that uh, raw meat has got um, low value uh, compared to both cooked meat. I mean, that's what we do know. Uh, and the point I want to say here is marrow. So what I, what I want, really want to emphasize here is that um, the consequences of cooking meat are very substantially uh, beneficial. The consequences of cooking marrow with its, uh, raw, its, its fat content uh, may be a bit less uh, so we'll think about this in terms of safety and palatability and time to ingest. Um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about digestibility and the cost of digestion because we don't know anything in terms of the marrow. So that's, that's completely crazy. You know, one of the most important foods probably in human evolution, um, uh, fat from animals uh, and cooking, the signature feature of the human diet, and yet we don't know um, what the consequences is of cooking fat for the energy gain. All right, so um, we know cooking is biologically important. We know it raises the food value. It probably does it differently for different foods. I want to propose uh, something that will um, annoy several of my colleagues, um, which is that uh, before cooking, um, hominid meat-eating was less important and hominid fat-eating was, was more important. So the first thing I want to say uh, is about uh, the dangers of eating um, from uh, a dead zebra that you happen to find there. It is disgusting. Um, so I, the, the, uh, Sonia Rajir uh, pointed out some time ago that, um, that, that meat uh, is dangerous uh, when you find it because of bacterial growth. Um, and uh, Alex Smith um, in my lab uh, did some nice experiments uh, showing that if you compare the rate of bacterial growth on raw meat uh, compared to, uh, to marrow, then it, it grows much faster on raw meat. And um, uh, whereas if you cook it, then uh, there's, it's, it's safe very quickly. And internal marrow is really safe. So um, meat, you can sometimes get away with uh, cutting the outside bits in or off and uh, uh, and taking uh, what's inside, but even then, uh, it decays pretty quickly, and uh, it is going to remain uh, rather dangerous, which I think is why chimpanzees, by the way, uh, don't scavenge much. Uh, if there was an implication earlier that they sort of don't recognize dead meat as food, I think they, they do. It's just that they're pretty cautious about it, and occasionally they do, they do scavenge. Okay, so now here's a major point I want to make, that uh, hominins without fire um, couldn't hunt much, because uh, there's just not much time for hunting. Uh, so here is the data on the amount of time that chimpanzees spend feeding, uh, which is incredibly frustrating to teams from National Geographic that come and want to see chimps doing fancy things, because, you know, in fact, all they do is just sit there eating most of the time. 
Um, and uh, there's variation among the sites, and um, the ones at the bottom, Bosu, uh, they're eating quite a lot of human foods uh, dug up from fields, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, we got uh, close on 50% of their day is spent literally just chewing. And um, that means that they can't do uh, other things, uh, such as write poetry or go hunting. <laughs> So here what we got is a slightly strange plot of uh, the distribution of time spent feeding in uh, non-human primates. Um, and, uh, and you see there's a pretty steady rise uh, as body size increases uh, on the bottom axis. And so by the time you are a homo, you should be eating for something like chewing for something like 50 to actually slightly higher than 50% of the day. That's what you should be doing. But you're not. And in fact, what humans do is they chew for less than an hour a day. Um, it's a relatively trivial time. And, and meat eating does not help that much if you are a raw eater. Uh, so here are some estimates that it's difficult to get normally for how much total time it, it takes to, to chew a carcass because uh, it's relatively rare that you can see all the different bits of the carcass and, uh, and how much they have been eaten by chimps. But, but this suggests that um, when you take, for instance, a baboon that weighs a certain amount and you estimate 80% of it was eaten uh, and uh, you total up all the eating that was done during that period uh, that you could see is a total of nine chimpanzee hours, and uh, the net result is that you're eating meat at about the uh, rate that you are some of the higher quality uh, fruits in terms of, of calorie intake. There's a note here saying that uh, Ian Gilby uh, thinks that um, I'm, I'm underestimating the rate of um, eating, and I'm sure I'm underestimating it from the initial phase of eating, where they're eating the softer bits. Um, but we have yet to get very good data on this, so it may turn out that, that uh, the underestimate is important. But nevertheless, that's what we got so far. Okay, so uh, chimps don't uh, hunt for very long at a time. Uh, here you see some estimates, uh, uh, all between uh, 15 and uh, between 15 minutes and, and half an hour, that sort of thing. Uh, if they get into a hunt, and after that, they they give up. And um, this doesn't uh, is not affected by how often uh, their overall uh, killing. Uh, there's this uh, big range that we've seen before, uh, sometimes uh, like one a month and sometimes ten a month. But uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, they're always just having this low rate of. Um, the slow duration of the hunt. And you can see why. Here is how the feeding time is distributed in a particular individual from dawn until dusk. The red is, is when he's chewing. So there's just not much time between chewing. And by the way, when they stop chewing, what are they doing? They're mostly uh, lying around uh, in order to be able to digest the food. So, so the, the typical pattern is you go up into a tree, you eat for 45 minutes, then you come and lie down and then uh, wait for the stomach to be entered and then you go up again. That's what seems to be happening. So there's variation among chimps, and here's you know, a, a bunch of different days, and you see some uh, days there is very, very little time to do anything other than eat, and, and sometimes more, and it balances out across days and so on. But you can look at this, and you can say, okay, let's look at the interfeeding interval. How much time is there between you know, what you've got to do, which is to get food into your, into your belly, and uh, the answer uh, is uh, that uh, the median of 20 minutes, the mean of 40 minutes, this is uh, old data from Gombe, um, but uh, that compares with the mean hunt duration of uh, a quarter of an hour, half an hour. Uh, so it's, it's about, about the same. And uh, the implication here is that uh, if you are chewing a lot, there's just no time to go hunting. So sorry. Now, humans, you know, obviously, were much less constrained by eating time and uh, Actually, funnily enough, there is no paper that has looked at uh, when humans eat. 
But this uh, looks like a very confident uh, assertion that um, among hunter-gatherers, only one regular meal is eaten in camp, and it's at night after the people have returned from the day's hunting. That's the sort of typical uh, pattern, uh, particularly as you go uh, into the earlier ethnographies. So I... Uh, humans are able to spend long hours during the day uh, on the hunt, and um, uh, here you see a distribution across uh, different hunter-gatherer societies for, uh, for men and women, and uh, the men are, are spending, on average, uh, uh, just over four hours a day, uh, which means that it is possible for them to do something that chimpanzees could not possibly do, and therefore I think that a raw meat-eating hominin could not have done either. Well, meanwhile, you know, so uh, could they go out and, uh, and, and, and track around uh, looking for um, uh, their food, uh, uh, foraging, hunting? Um, Dan Lieberman and uh, his colleague Bramble have uh, uh, drawn attention to a whole bunch of features in our skeletons which indicate that Homo is uniquely derived in an ability to have endurance walking or endurance running, tramping around across the savannah uh, looking for opportunities to... Uh, to, to either scavenge or to kill. Well, that doesn't seem very easy if you've got a great big belly that we've just been hearing about um, with those f- uh, flared ribs, and you're keeping it full of stuff all the time. You know, so you're asking a, a gorilla full of, of vegetation, as it were, uh, to go uh, running off for uh, two or three hours? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think the, you know, one reason is it's got a large gut, and that large gut is, is full for a tremendous amount of the time. Uh, and then uh, I actually think there's probably another reason. Um, this is a little bit speculative, admittedly, but um, I, I think that uh, the um, uh, creatures before fire would have needed to keep warm at night with hair. And as long as they had to do that, then they couldn't lose heat easily during the day. So it's very difficult for me to imagine an endurance runner in particular uh, being able to do that uh, before fire. Okay, so what I'm saying so far is that uh, meat-eating would have been less extensive before the control of fire because of the lack of safety in the raw meat, and the fact of chewing for so long meant that you had uh, also uh, large guts full of food. Uh, You couldn't uh, run and and hunt, uh, and... um, I, I suspect when, when we know about it that uh, the relative value of raw meat compared to raw fat uh, is, uh, is going to be relatively low. Okay, so, so what did hominins eat before cooking? Because um, I do think that it's reasonable to imagine that there's been a phase uh, in which hominins were using animal products before cooking. And the safe bit uh, are the ones that are enclosed in um, bone, and that would be marrow or brain uh, from below the exposed surfaces uh, is, is what you want to do. And uh, uh, certainly marrow is an important food for uh, hunter-gatherers. Here is data for the Hadza uh, and how many of them are eaten raw. So by the time you're eating big animals like buffalo, uh, James Oliver finds that um, 80%, or 70-80% of the limb bones uh, are eaten raw. So that, that all seems just, just fine. But there would be a difference if you're eating them raw from eating cooked, because nowadays um, there is an ability to use both the uh, marrow in the shaft of the bone and uh, the fat in the, uh, the trabecular bone or, or the cancellous uh, bone area, which you very difficult to get out with just with your teeth. You really have to boil it up to be able to release the grease. And uh, until you have cook- cooking, then you're not going to be able to use that very much. 
And then there's a difference in um, the kind of marrow that is going to be preferred. Uh, so um, Binford uh, showed very nicely that there is a good relationship between the degree of unsaturated fat in the marrow uh, and the preference. Uh, here you see uh, for the Nunaimut people that uh, he was studying, uh, that the more unsaturated marrow there is, then the more uh, the bone is preferred. Uh, so unsaturated is much nicer uh, than saturated fat when it's eaten raw, uh, and uh, that is probably because it has got a lower melting point. And with a lower melting point, it probably, I think it'll turn out, uh, will turn out to have um, a lower cost of digestion because the body is going to have to work less hard to reduce it to the tiny, tiny particles, just a few angstroms across, that have to um, be reduced before it can go uh, across uh, the intestinal wall. So uh, where are the unsaturated fats found? They are found more at the nether ends of the limbs. So if you take a, a typical ungulate foreleg, you find that the saturated fats tend to be richer close to the uh, shoulder and throughout the axial skeleton, and the unsaturated fats are uh, richer at the, um, the distal parts which nobody understands why that is. I mean, there's the sort of suggestion, well, unsaturated fats uh, having lower melting points, they may be sort of more flexible, they may uh, allow more flexibility, uh, but that's, that's you know, a bit speculative. Okay, so um, uh, preference for unsaturated fats. Um, and then there's the, um, uh, the question of brains. So the limb marrow is great for most of the year, but you see here in, uh, in a couple of uh, examples that female marrow uh, is very poor during periods of the year when the animals are in poor condition, going right down to 20% fat. And that's a point uh, mirroring what's happening with the kidney fat uh, at which uh, you can expect that there will be rejection of the food. Uh, so here's a claims from Binford uh, saying that, that uh, if the caribou is in too poor condition, you, you break open the bone and it's soft and runny, then no, goodbye. During those periods, brains should be okay. Now, um, here's Kim Hill saying that uh, uh, he, he loved... Um, well, he's saying that the Ache and the Hiwi, uh, hunter-gatherers in Paraguay and Venezuela, uh, loved brains, and he says uh, grossly that he loved it himself. Um, I, I asked him if he had it raw. He said no. Um, but, uh, but you could, uh, as long as it's reasonably fresh. You know, there is decay that goes on there. Uh, of course, the problem with brains is that they're hard to extract, and if you're a hominin, uh, they're embedded very often with things with horns, and, uh, and the skull is really heavy. So it's not that great, but it is good because uh, the uh, quality of the fat always stays high. It's the last thing that you will lose fat from. Um, and, and then goodbye. <laughs> so my conclusion is that if the early homo diets uh, were raw... Uh, then you've got to put up with the notion that there was extensive chewing, minimal time for hunting, and I think no endurance running. And they would be eating, um, particularly uh, from the fat-rich areas, uh, and there'd be more marrow than in cooked diets. There'd be more marrow, especially from the distal bones, and uh, especially from the brain. So overall, more scavenging, more fat, and less meat. 
Overall, uh, the, the kind of concept that uh, I was uh, referring to uh, earlier of chimpanzee-style hunting giving rise to an interest in animal products and then percussive fat processing, breaking open those limb bones, and, uh, and, and then finally getting the human uh, predatory pattern, uh, I, I, you know, that seems to me a, a great way to think about things. And then we should think about the uh, first three stages as uh, involving uh, raw meat, but I don't think you can go very far into the fourth without making it cooked. So I have a different concept uh, of uh, the Harvard and the Yale presidents. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.